Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Peter Hart, chairman of Hart Research Associates, a public opinion research firm that provides polls for NBC News and the Wall Street Journal. He discussed the driving forces behind the 2016 presidential election and the influence of voter demographics and public opinion on the race. The conversation was moderated by Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaker Series. I'm Nico, director of the Shorenstein Center. Let's get right into it. We have Peter Hart here. Peter is regarded as one of the top analysts of public opinion in the United States. He has worked with everyone from Hubert Humphrey and Jay Rockefeller to Edward Kennedy and Bill Clinton. He's represented more than 55 U.S. senators and 40 governors. His work with Hart Research has touched almost every single aspect of American life. He is an exceptional human being, and in the fall of 2013, he was a visiting fellow here at the Shorenstein Center. A Peter, great experience. Thank uh, you for joining us this morning. And it's nice that you've uh, dated me by giving Hubert Humphrey and, <laughs> and so on and so forth. I have to tell you something that happened to me uh, when I was at the Shorenstein Center. After my first class, one of the uh, young students came running up to me and said, what was the most exciting presidential election you've ever been in? Was it Obama? Was it Kennedy? Or was it Roosevelt? <laughs> I, said, I said Roosevelt. I wasn't even alive for Roosevelt. And they said to me, no, 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 I meant Franklin, not Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be dated. Go for it. What, what has surprised you most about this election? Uh, what has surprised me most about this election uh, is, uh, is how much it has been a race to the bottom. I mean, when you started out, this election year uh, had all the earmarks uh, of an election that would not only uh, help to usher in a new era, but would also uh, provide uh, a tremendous uh, insight into where, where and how the Republican Party would be positioned for the future. And what we've ended up with is anything but that. And what we've ended up with is, um, in Donald Trump, <coughs> a candidate who has, uh, has really just uh, debased the system and, more importantly, uh, left the Republican Party without a direction and in a terrible position. And instead of celebrating the next, uh, having uh, the first female president, uh, it just feels like we're uh, sort of crashing into, uh, crashing into the sea as we, uh, as we uh, get ready to vote. There is not a sense of elation. There's no sense of, uh, of uplift. Uh, it is sort of a question of will we, uh, will we get through it, and that's where we're at. But what uh, you you follow public opinion? You do a lot of commercial and political work. Were there trends? This this can't have come out of nowhere. Well, that's the fascinating element of it. Uh, everybody thinks that it came out of nowhere, but in reality, uh, it didn't. Uh, and um, uh, I think I can. I, I just get, I've got some slides that. Uh, yeah, uh, let me take you through this slide just very quickly. And that is, everybody thinks that somehow this election came from nowhere. Uh, but it has been coming. It's like a tsunami, and we should have seen it coming. And, you know, you start off with uh, the incivility of this election. And people say, God, I've just never seen anything like it. But 25 years ago, we had Jerry Springer. And from Jerry Springer, we go to uh, Donald Trump and um, and The Apprentice. Jerry Springer started as a political, as a politician. Well, I will tell you something. I worked for Jerry Springer when he was the mayor of Cincinnati. So uh, I did not think he would go in that direction. Uh, but in any respect, so what we've learned uh, is that 
essentially all of this was coming and you look at everything that happens whether it is Twitter or whether it is on the net should we be surprised that there's that much incivility and the answer is no then the second thing is what this election has really been about is a hollowed out middle and you stop and you look and uh, what we find is that uh, essentially the upper class communities, a uh, number of upper uh, income communities are moving up. The number of lower uh, income communities are moving up. And we've lost 203 where the share of the middle income has declined. So you say, geez, I'm shocked. But Bernie Sanders and uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump were two sides of the same coin. And it was a coin of trying to figure out you know who we are and where we're at and how do you how's the middle class make it then the third element is suddenly in this election what we end up with we ended up with donald trump and ben carson and carly fiorina and if i said to you two years ago hey these are going to be three major candidates you say well they collectively they have zero experience and what we ended up with here is a zero experience but essentially uh, we've had nothing but amateur professionals moving everywhere. I mean, stop and think about it. You know, journalists or bloggers, uh, you know, nobody calls a travel agent anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ubers, which is my favorite, uh, you know, it's a now our new thing. I, I'm a little bit older than everybody else here, and I just would tell you that when I was growing up, my mother had one rule for me, never jump into a car with a stranger. You know, now we just rush into these cars no matter what it is. And then the last element is you know, what you've been measuring so much, which is traditional powers now ineffective. We all thought that when Bush raised $100 million, we'd seen how this campaign was going to play out. But what we learned is just the opposite. Uh, and that is, it doesn't make any difference if it's Tesla or SpaceX or, you know, go, go right across the field, Amazon and everything else. Traditional power is no longer where it is. And all of those things were what 2016 has been about. But it was all coming, and we should see it, and we should have known it. What... Uh how how do you see this how do you see this playing out for for the country i mean are these trends all likely to increase i look at certainly the middle being hollowed out is not something likely to change overnight right. uh amateur professionals not something change right. not you know th these are trends in some sense big. that take their big trends take a very long time to address or turn around the hardest one to get your head around and i think is probably the incivility and the 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 <coughs> diffusion of traditional power. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I unfortunately believe that the next four years um, uh, are going to be a very hard time, both in public life and uh, for the country as we're trying to deal with our issues. I'd like to tell you I'm very confident and I feel upbeat about where this uh, election is going to take us. Unfortunately, I think we solved nothing. And because we have two candidates who have a majority of Americans with negative feelings, it does not surprise me uh, that, uh, that whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, they're going to have a very hard time uh, bringing the country together. Now, in terms of these trends, yeah. I mean, uh, you look at this and um, this is the direction of the country, but that doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. I mean, the whole change from traditional power and the way in which, obviously, uh, the, uh, the Internet has played a tremendous role in all of this is a great step forward. Uh, and uh, the incivility, um, you know, like anything else, I think it's a pendulum. And maybe at some stage of the game it starts to swing back. Obviously, the revulsion of the American public uh, to the tape uh, of Donald Trump and Billy Bush um, tells us something about centering from where we're that at. there is a floor. Or a sub-basement. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, if you, if we imagine for a moment as the trends seem to indicate Hillary Clinton ends up president, what advice do you give her about her first 200 days? Well, I, I think first and foremost, um, um, she needs to look into herself. I mean, that 
the biggest challenge for her is uh, she's so much better as a private person than as a public candidate. And I think she needs to be able to figure out how, uh, uh, how to uh, relate in an open uh, and transparent way with the public. And that's in part relating to the press and, uh, and feeling comfortable uh, in this. I mean, this is an area that she's just never been happy with. And that's, that's going to be exceptionally important. <coughs> the second thing is that what we don't recognize is Hillary Clinton's one of her greatest strengths uh, we haven't really seen. And that is her ability to reach across the aisle. She is a consensus builder uh, rather than an ideologue. And my guess is, and um, I've talked to top Republicans on this, that one of her strengths is she will get into the Congress in a way that um, Barack Obama didn't. And she will, uh, she will uh, because the Republicans will want to do this, she will get uh, legislation through. And so and rather than saying we're going to have a stale month, uh, uh, May 12 months, the answer is no, I think that we will start to see things happen. And uh, her potentiality for having a positive job rating, uh, I think, is there not on the cult of personality, but uh, on, uh, on the cult of effectiveness and uh, getting things done. I mean, I think um, we will do something in immigration. I think that that will come out of this at some stage of the game because the Republicans are going to recognize Donald Trump is going to get less uh, Hispanic votes than, uh, than Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney got 27 percent, and we couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I couldn't think— Couldn't believe it because it was so low. Yeah, it was so low. And I think that, uh, that, uh, that Trump will be in the low 20s, maybe— all the way in the teens, I can't tell, but it looks that way. And uh, I think we'll get something on immigration. I think we'll get something on infrastructure. So that uh, we talk about stalemate and nothing will get done. I think uh, her strength will actually be uh, that she will uh, get in and start to work with the Congress. Well, I kind of want to ask you that question also about Paul Ryan. Right. What as uh, assuming Hillary wins, what you know, Paul Ryan is in some sense the leader of the Republican Party, um, but is you know, somehow buffeted by forces almost beyond his control. You have 50 members of the House Freedom Caucus, you know, who really don't want any compromise whatsoever with Hillary and would rather wait. Would, would rather have gridlock. What? Uh, moreover, I think it seems like we're, there's something of an open civil war. Every single day for the last few days, Donald Trump, the Republican nominee, has attacked Paul Ryan instead of Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah, oh, so that's an unusual strategy, I yeah. guess you'd say. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, well, I think that uh, the challenge is that the Republican Party did not solve anything out of this election. And that's really what they needed to do, whether they chose a Cruz or they chose a Rubio. They needed to have some sort of direction where they said, what we're going to do out of this election is we're going to move right and we're going to be able to test that thesis that the Republican Party can build a base on the right and become an effective uh, uh, party in terms of ruling uh, the country. Or, number two, we're going to build the party that uh, Reince uh, Priebus talked about, which is we've got to reach into the minority communities and millennials, et cetera. But Trump was a 360 candidate. I mean, he touched every single issue someplace for a little point here or a little point there and gave them no ideological direction. And so in the end of the day, the fight between the moderates uh, where Paul Ryan resides and the Freedom Caucus is not, resi is not resolved at all. And what we end up with is, uh, is tremendous clashes. But what I was saying in terms of Hillary Clinton, I think she will go in and she will not build with the Freedom Caucus, but she will be able to build things with Paul Ryan one way or another. That's my guess. They almost need her to do that. 
Right. Oh, they definitely yeah. do. It's in his best interest, and it's in her best interest. You know, yesterday Amy Walter was saying she, she was having a hard time seeing where <laughs> Republicans in Congress would uh, nominate, uh, <coughs> would allow a Supreme Court justice, even one like Merrick Garland. And so what's your assessment? Look, I think the Republicans, uh, I think the Democratic Senate made a huge mistake. I would have taken the Garland nomination and made that the center issue for the Democratic uh, Senate and congressional campaigns and essentially said, uh, you can vote it up, you can vote it down, but your job <coughs> is to uh, is to act on this. And uh, the country won't, won't stand for it, period. I mean, that, look, you go all the way back and you go back to, uh, to I guess, 1986 and Bork, uh, and that's where it all started. I mean, you, we can go back further uh, uh, with uh, who's mediocrity, uh, uh, the voice for mediocrity that was turned down in the 70s. Um, Holling, uh, Hollingsworth yeah, is one. Yeah, Hollingsworth, and then there was the other. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway. It starts with a C. Yeah, Carswell. Carswell, thank you very much. High five. Uh, we're all we're all testing our memories, uh, long term, not short term. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but you go back and you can date it back from '86, and that's when it really became partisan and and uh, and ideological, and you move forward from there. Uh, but to be perfectly honest. Uh, no, we're not going to reside with eight Supreme Court members, and uh, and something will happen. It's a fight, but too many Republicans uh, will not go along with that strategy. How would you? I have a couple more questions, then we'll open it up to the room. How would you assess your profession in this election cycle? The pollsters, uh, very mixed, um, and uh, polling has become so diverse and difficult and we're in a period of transition. And what we have is uh, a profession, like any profession, if you take the law or medical or financial, you take any field and you look and what we've ended up with is, uh, is uh, some polls that are exceptionally well done, some polls that are done uh, less well. A lot of polling that is done now online where you can't draw a truly honest and uh, complete sample. As I like to say, we who are doing telephone polls uh, are doctors. Those who are doing online are chiropractors. Uh, both of them have a place within the broad medical field. But, uh, but uh, it, it is, uh, it's done in a very diverse way. And the other thing is what I call the proliferation of polls. I mean, when I started, uh, I started in 1964, um, and I worked for Lou Harris, and there was Harris and Gallup, and that was sort of it in the field. And if you look now, any university says, I've got a great way of getting publicity we're going to create this poll and they may or may not know and they may be good and they may be bad and so it's just such a range at this stage of the game and uh, and you know then you have real clear politics and they bring an average to all the polls well you know it's sort of like taking um, the wines of 2011 and say we're going to pour them all together and we're going to have an average of the wines. Well, maybe so, but it leaves a bad taste in everybody's <laughs> mouth. What about how, how uh, what, what do you, how do you understand the role of the media in this election cycle? Beats me. No. I mean, look, um, again, I think it goes down and back around to amateur professionals. Everybody has an equal voice in this election. I mean, we can say the days of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, whoever you want to say, the major media, they, there's been a certain um, dispersion there, and that's fine. It's all a part of uh, the new power, and a lot of this has been uh, marvelous. But at the same time, 
I think the one thing we can all agree on is ratings have driven this. I mean, Donald Trump has been a magnet. I mean, that you put him on anytime, anywhere, and bingo. And I, I love sort of the morning Joe element. You know, they created him, and then essentially he turned on them, and they turned on him, and, you know, you have all of this, but uh, I, I guarantee you that the number of hours that Donald Trump has, I mean, if today Donald Trump got a true influenza, could not appear, and he said, Mike Pence will appear in my place, the audience would drop by three quarters. Hmm. If, if um, Hillary Clinton got an influenza and... Tim Kaine uh, appeared instead, the audience would still be just as high. I mean, Donald Trump has been the magnet for this campaign, and it's like watching the Daytona 500. We all are waiting for the crash. We got it, finally. The hot mic was the crash. And, you know, for what he did with the Khan family and all of the other things, this was the crash. And when it happened, uh, you know, everybody said, great, okay, we waited for it and we got it. And that's what they wanted. Do you think, um, or what do you think is, why has he been so resistant to, to criticism? Why hasn't the, or why has public opinion not shifted more dramatically uh, through the course of the primary campaign, from call, starting with calling John McCain, he's not a war hero, to the attack on the Khan family. What, what, how do you understand his kind of imperviousness? Well, I think, I think that my point would be, uh, we've seen it from the beginning. Uh, the, the thing I love to point to is... Um, is this. We've been asking this question since 1996. If blank became president, would you be optimistic and confident, satisfied and hopeful, pessimistic and worried, or uncertain and wondering? We didn't create that for this election. You go all the way back, and we've had it uh, for every election since 96. And essentially, everybody says, God, this has happened, that's happened, it's been like bumper cars and so on and so forth. Well, here is October of 15, and 43% of the American public said, I think Hillary Clinton, I will be either optimistic and confident or satisfied and hopeful. 56% said, look, I'll either be uncertain and wondering or pessimistic and worried. And you've gone through everything that you want to go, WikiLeak, everything else and she's now 43 and 55 you know that's not even the margin of error I mean that is like an identical number and you go back to Donald Trump and you're saying well geez the American public from the beginning sized up Donald Trump his he never broke 30 percent in positive feelings towards him and he was never less than 50 percent so we've been captured by this thing, and we've been thinking, oh, my God, this has been a roller coaster. The answer is it's been a, it's been a flat line in terms of this. Let me just see if I – yeah, here's the feelings towards Trump starting the month that he essentially uh, announced he was running. 55% of the American public said, I have negative feelings towards him, 26% positive, and you run it straight through – and the answer is, but is that it, 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 do you understand that because they're both really well-known candidates before the campaign started, or is that somehow a reflection that it's just getting harder and harder to shape public opinion for a variety of? Oh, I don't, th I don't think that at all. I mean that essentially, um, while I can't show you uh, candidates, they the people go up and down, and but I'm saying that these two people. I mean, whether it was the way in which Donald Trump had started and the way people felt about him, or the fact that in this campaign he defined himself so early that, you know, when you start out with, uh, with uh, Mexicans being rapists and murderers or whatever else it is, I mean, you define yourself fairly quickly. And essentially, the public at no stage 
uh, found him acceptable. And you look, and Hillary Clinton, no difference. She never started out on a po with more positive than negative. And you can say, well, uh, there are areas where she went down uh, further, and you coming to the end, and she's in a better shape than she's been since uh, last year. And that's what I call gestation. Uh, the public saying, yeah, this is where we're going to end up, and I'm going to be able to live with her. What, you know, it's kind of, in some ways, it's, it's easy to understand the people's resistance to Donald Trump because he says such offensive things quite explicitly. But how do you understand the attitudes towards Hillary? What is, what is behind that? Is that purely a function of her longevity in the public eye? Or? No, no, because I think uh, there are lots of people who have this longevity and attitudes are favorable or they'll go up and down. I think Hillary Clinton uh, has uh, two different problems. I think the single biggest problem is integrity. I think the American public have never felt comfortable uh, that you go all the way back to cattle futures and whitewater and, and so on and so forth. There's always something in every period that comes up. And her best periods were the two periods where she was, quote, uh, most exposed, which is interesting, which was as senator from New York and as secretary of state. In Secretary of State, she started uh, with a feeling thermometer score of 44 positive and 40 negative. And I, I ran into her at a restaurant one night, and I said, you know, the most gratifying thing I have to tell you is that in our last most recent poll, you're 59 positive and 20, 25 negative. And I said, you know, to drop the negative by 15 points is tremendous. Now, the moment she announced, she went back to 44-40 because we're a partisan country and she was now a, a candidate. But the first and foremost, I think that in terms of integrity, there's always been a suspicion, an uncomfortable uh, feeling that she is not above board and open. It's sort of like when you watch uh, Wimbledon and they show you, you know, is a ball in or out and you can see it's not even a fraction of an inch. I think that's how the public feels that maybe she's just inside the line but barely inside the line. There's never been that. And the, and the second element is that uh, I think that there's not a transparency that the voters are looking for. I mean, there's always been sort of, as I put it, I did, I, I did a focus group on Hillary in the fall of uh, 15, and I said, as she's trying to break the glass ceiling, the voters are trying to break the glass curtain. And they always feel that there's a glass curtain between her, that they can see her, they can hear her, but they don't feel that they can touch her or relate to her. And that's, and that's going to be the huge challenge in terms of her popularity as president. Uh, and people say, well, there's a gender bias. And indeed, there is a gender bias. And I don't think we've measured it completely and fully. Uh, but overall, I think that uh, she's always had a, a hard time because uh, there isn't that sort of uh, natural relationship. And to most voters, you know, uh, that their first introduction to her was when she said, you know, I'm no little Tammy Wynette, you know, and it was that feistiness that's always apparent and it's always there. Uh, I have lots more questions, but I'll open it to the room. Yeah. I'm Maxine Isaacs. I'm on the faculty here at the college. Um, what do you think you're going to want to know from the public following tonight's debate? <coughs> Nothing. I think you know. You know where. No, well, I mean, I look. If you come out and tell me that the Donald Trump that everybody has said needs to expose uh, to be exposed in a positive way, and he says, "Look, my personal behavior, I apologize for." Uh, and at times I go over the line, but let me just tell you what this election is about. This election is nothing more than about the economy and the future of America. And uh, it goes to trade deals, it goes into 
who we're going to be and what we're going to be. And he talks to, let me just show you something uh, here. And that is, uh, in August, after the two conventions, in our NBC Wall Street Journal poll, we put up uh, a question which said, uh, how do you feel about uh, the statements uh, here? And we did not put names on them. We only put the statements. And we took it right from the, uh, right from the uh, acceptance speeches of the two candidates. One is talking about this is a moment of crisis for our nation and the attacks, et cetera, threaten our future. And any politician who doesn't grasp it is, uh, is not fit to leave our country. The other says, don't let anyone tell you our country is weak. We are not, et cetera. The, and don't believe anybody who says he's the only one who can fix it. And they didn't know who, which candidate or anything. And we said to them, uh, how much do you agree with the statements of each candidate? And it wasn't even close. And look at the groups. Look at the groups, white women, suburban women, uh, college graduates who are white, moderates, independents. Donald Trump had the better hand to play in this election. There is no doubt about it. This is a country, every election is either continuity or change. He was the change candidate. It was a change election. But his personality, his uh, manner, his style, all cost uh, things. So essentially, do I want to know something? Yeah, if there was a brand new and different uh, uh, Trump that should have been there right after the convention, and uh, then there would be something to learn. But I expect we're going to see the same Donald Trump and the same Hillary Clinton. And will we measure it in terms of uh, who's ahead and who's behind? Yes, but I don't think the dynamic is going to change. Other questions? Uh, how, oh, Tom. Yeah, uh, Tom Patterson, I'm on the faculty uh, here. They, um, <clears throat> could you dig in a little bit into the the white working male? Yeah. Um, it's been trending Republican for a while, but um, how much different is it around the Trump candidacy? Uh, I mean, it's a great question and an important point, and that is uh, the white uh, the white working uh, class um, is Donald Trump's base because essentially he has been able to talk to them about real issues in their lives and uh, and it is uh, it is the sense of they're they're in the crosshairs of what's happened in our society. I mean the change in immigration has affected their uh, their work. The change in terms of uh, technology has affected their work and their lives. All of those things have, uh, have had a tremendous effect. They are the people who have turned out in the rallies. Uh, they have certainly moved more Republican over a period of time. I was talking uh, with a journalist uh, about this. And if you look um, over, uh, over a period, this is the one group where you can say, uh, actually, uh, he's running ahead of, uh, of Romney. Every other group, he's running behind what Romney got, and Romney lost by three points. So that's all very much there. So from my point of view, um, I look at this, and, uh, and uh, I mean, it's what do you do with West Virginia? What is its future? How do you save a West Virginia? What do you, and you know, you're not talking about five and 10 families, you're talking, I mean, this is a national crisis. And you know, you can then spread it across uh, coal country and you can spread it across all of uh, this. And um, the book that uh, I'm dropping, The Elegy, somebody. Uh, uh, Hillbilly. Hillbilly. Thank you very much, Hillbilly. No, it it just gets it exactly, exactly what's happening, and uh, and uh, I, I don't think uh, I, I I think that the Republicans have done an excellent job of uh, rubbing salt in their wounds, 
but I don't think anybody has figured out a bomb to be able to help them. How do you understand younger voters, right? There's been this thread the last few weeks that Hillary can't seem to capture the younger voters who went hard for Obama and who also were very uh, big supporters of Bernie. Do you think there is a big, um, do you you think there is a legitimate big split uh, age-wise in terms of a a younger, more liberal, more progressive electorate? Yeah, I I think that, uh, that, yeah, I always believed that uh, that based on my early work and everything that was out there, uh, that there was uh, there was a definite core that of people who said the country's in uh, terrible shape, and who's going to attack? And part of it is attacking uh, uh, attacking Washington and the status quo. Part of it is uh, is Wall Street. Part of it is, I mean. Yeah, I'm going to diverge off your question for a second and go back around to Hillary Clinton. Um, fortunately, uh, I have very few emails to John Podesta, so, uh, uh, but Hillary's problem is people don't trust her. And everybody said, well, how do you deal with that? Can you address it? Can you give a speech? You can't. When you have that many things, it's not as though you say, this is wrong, etc. But I always thought the way to deal with it was about character. And what you did is you found a way to talk and show her character. And so when EpiPen happened, I said, That is so important and so central that she should be out in front of the factory and saying, this is an outrage. These are the people that I'm going to hold accountable, and these are the people I'm fighting for. Mm -hmm. When Wells Fargo happened, she should have been out in front of Wells Fargo and said, these are the people I'm going to go out and get, and these are the people that I'm fighting for. And at that stage, she establishes her character of who she's for and who she's against and what it's about. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is for millennials, they get it. They see this and, you know, they worry about where we're going and they worry about the kinds of things that Bernie talked about. So they are most reluctant They've held back, but they know, and it's never been a question, would they vote for Donald Trump? I mean, there was zero chance they were voting. I mean, right after the primaries, when you ask uh, how they were voting and in terms of this, it was 81 to 9. I mean, they had no interest in Donald Trump. and, And it's only a question, would they stay with a third party or would they not vote? We don't know the answer in terms of not voting, but it would appear that the third party has diminished in terms of this. Uh, I always thought that he had one chance uh, and one chance only, and that was be if the low 40s was enough to be able to win. In a but do you think do you think that kind of if a generation do you believe that generations harden in kind of a political perspective? Like, is that a harbinger of the next 30 years? Or do you think that a, a, a generation with a view of politics changes its mind over time? Well, it does change over time, but uh, the thing that we do know, and others would be much more scholarly at this than I am, but we know if people vote in three elections in a row uh, as they become part of the voting age population, they stay in that, uh, with that party, generally, uh, most of them. And uh, obviously, uh, that was part of the, uh, well, you go back to FDR and that coalition, but also you look at the Reagan coalition with Bush, uh, uh, Bush 41, and now you can have uh, millennials voting Obama, Obama, Clinton. And it doesn't guarantee it, but it certainly suggests that it puts them in a much better position with an important group and with the Republicans unable to address and uh, deal with any of the social issues. I just think that the barrier is so large. 
Richard. I want to ask you a question uh, because I try to understand the focus on white working class voters because it, you know this, but I went back and counted uh, the number of elections since 1952 mm -hmm. that whites as a group have voted for the Democratic Party. And it's just once in 1964 in 64 years. And then I looked at college educated, I sort of put aside, right. the, and they've only voted three times for the Democratic Party, 64 and then the two Obama elections. Yeah. What I, I'd be more interested in hearing, well, what do you think about the white college educated and whether or not the fact that they've now voted two elections in a row and your polls and others say they're going to vote Democratic this cycle, does that mean that segment is, is shifting or, and why? Well, uh, again, uh, I think one of the major changes is that if you go back and look at white college educated, uh, that was what we called the, uh, a lot of them were the, um, elite sort of business uh, and the moderate Republicans that we had. At this stage of the game, uh, obviously, it's become a much larger and more diverse population. And um, let me see if I've got this uh, at some stage. Uh, yeah, this is uh, because this is exactly what Richard's talking about is take a look at the exit polls of, of 2012 versus what we've picked up in the last two polls for NBC and the Wall Street Journal. And any place where you see essentially uh, uh, the blue going up uh, or the red going down, it tells you what's happened. So you take a look at white, uh, white college, uh, essentially uh, uh, Romney won that by 13 points. Mm -hmm. And in this election, at best, even with uh, with where things are at, it's at zero. It's it's dead even, or whatever else it is. And a lot of that, obviously, is being driven by millennials, and uh, and that's there. But uh, no, the uh, the shift in America, and the reason the Democrats are strong is you move from an eighty percent white electorate. Mm -hmm to a 70% white electorate. That's going to continue, uh, right? That, that trend line is still down. Uh, that is correct. And until the Republicans can talk to uh, non-whites, uh, their uh, opportunities are limited. Christine Bosnason from the Harvard Gazette. I have a question about um, the optimistic, pessimistic uh, viewpoint. What's the relationship between people saying what their mood is or their feeling either about the country or about the, the election itself? And get out the vote and voting. Well, how does is there a relationship between if people are stressed out, they they go to the polls more because they're worried, or they don't because they're overwhelmed? Well, it's a great question because there are different elements uh, involved in this. I've now come to believe in this election, right direction, wrong track is no longer a question that we've had since 1970. Is no longer uh, a good bellwether of where people are at. Uh, and uh, and uh, to be perfectly honest, in terms of voter turnout, I think it is based uh, not necessarily on stress or anything else. I think it's based on the candidates. And what we think is that the true danger for the Clinton campaign is who decides to turn out. And if you look over a period of time, the African-American vote, look at their level of interest in 04, 08, 12, and now in this election. And the point here is, if they're, I mean, I've always said the key to this election is, uh, is Barack Obama. I believe Barack Obama and, uh, I'll add in Michelle at this stage of the game, will be the two heroes of uh, this election both in terms of a moral message, but also in terms of inspiring a group of people that have to get to the polls. So the interest is way off. And if you look, uh, the, Latino, uh, the Latino vote is uh, actually up at this stage of the game, but down from 08. Uh, so I don't think that the turnout is going to be as great. And if you're a Republican, you need to worry about that. Uh, because, uh, not surprisingly, their vote is down. So, do I think that people are stimulated <coughs> to go in terms of protest? Uh, 
Yes, sometimes, but I think this uh, campaign has been so negative and so desolatory that people are not uh, inspired to go out and vote. Hi. Michael Blake. Uh, in full disclosure, I ran African American Irish for Obama, and I 1,000% agree with everything you just said. Uh, are, are, are the polls nationally reflecting uh, the early vote turnout that's happening? Because, I mean, when you're looking at it state by state, uh, Clinton is doing better in early vote than Trump, but you really don't hear that talked about in terms of how polling is assessing the progress on the ground. Right. Uh, we actually ask people in our NBC Wall Street Journal poll now if they voted uh, and if they plan to vote by mail or, uh, or uh, indirectly versus coming to the polls. So we look at that. Uh, but uh, what I think you're seeing reflected is the organizational difference. And you have to remember, if you go back 40 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago, the people who voted absentee were the people who uh, were going to Florida or going to be going on a European vacation. Uh, at this stage of the game, uh, you know, it is, uh, it is a lot of working class and it's a lot of organization. And I think that's all going to pay off for the Democrats. Um, the thing that we haven't talked about is the Senate. And uh, I'll just do a segue into the Senate that essentially if you look at the Senate um, in this, um, Uh, you essentially have 11 Senate races that were targeted as sort of uh, up for grabs early on. And the Republicans have only one potential pickup, and they're sitting with 10 states where there's a problem. And the difficulty that they have is that you look at this, and you can look at the Clinton margin that essentially uh, in seven of these, uh, or 11, eight of the 11 states, uh, Clinton has a margin, and you can look the Republican races either in close or not. Now, there are states like uh, Ohio and probably Arizona where the Republicans uh, will, uh, will hold on to their seats, I think, uh, with ease, not positive in Arizona, but, uh, but basically. And then suddenly you look at all the others, and you say, yeah, but look, uh, the Republicans still ahead. I'm telling you, they're holding an ice cream cone outside <laughs> when it's 95 degrees and high humidity. Folks, this is going to melt. And they don't know it, but it's, I've gone through it on the other side. I went through it in 1980, and I've gone through it in other years. And you think you've got a lead, and the answer is, no, you're not taking all factors into account. So, if so you, you think the lead in the Senate races Republicans currently have will will evaporate? Yeah, of course. It's going to evaporate for two reasons. I'm not saying that some candidates won't hold on, but it's going to evaporate because they're going to have a turnout problem. Uh, they've got a second problem is half of them, uh, as uh, true cowards, uh, announced, you know, recently, oh, I'm not for Trump, thinking they'll pick up the middle. No, they're just going to lose some of their own supporters who say, uh, you coward. The only people who could win in terms of that were people at the time, at the beginning, when Romney came out and said, this guy is sick and bad for uh, society. If they come out then, that's a profile of courage. They all waited they saw their poll numbers and they said, whoa, it can't be there. I got to pick up some of the middle. But what they're doing is they're losing from their base and they won't pick up from the middle. And you guys know much better than I do uh, the Kelly Ayotte race. You know, close, but I would have to say not going to happen for her. And, you know, you're going to look at Missouri. Uh, I think that they're going to, Democrats are going to surprise Republicans. North Carolina is another state. And all of these, you'd say, yeah, but look at the polls. Don't look at the polls. Look at the fact that uh, essentially what's happening in the campaign dynamic. What about the House? Uh, I think it would be a stretch. Um, if Hillary Clinton wins by 10 points or more, then I think the House is in play. Uh, I would be surprised if she wins by 10 points or more. 
Uh, again, we'll know more after the debate tonight. In, in your experience, when does when do the dynamics of a presidential race really settle? Do you think it's this debate is the, you know? Uh, this debate uh, uh, is like uh, spinning the wheel on uh, on a roulette table. Mm-hmm. The answer is it's one spin. I mean, in terms of all that goes on. Uh, I mean, really, unless there is some crystallizing moment. I mean, I love to refer back to, and I'm sorry for the younger students here, but 1980 was one of the really interesting debates. And the reason it was is because the American public had figured out early on they did not want Jimmy Carter for a second term. But if you look at the polls, all through September and October, the polls were in a three, five-point race, suggesting it was very close. And then there was the final debate that was, I think, about seven days before the election. And all of a sudden, the polls opened up, and Ronald Reagan won big. The reason it happened is because the American public had already decided they did not want Jimmy Carter. They only needed to be reassured by Ronald Reagan. That was the one debate. And he, and he provided that reassurance. And the dam broke open. We're, I, what I'm telling you is we know everything we want to know about Donald Trump and we know everything we want to know about Hillary Clinton. This debate is not going to clarify anything. You know, the press may find something to chew on, but I don't really see changing the, especially if you go back to our figures from a year ago. Well, uh, Peter, do you have any closing comments for us? Yeah, I've loved this session. I thank you. Uh, This has been marvelous. And obviously, uh, watch the debate tonight. And please, on election night, watch NBC. uh, Can I ask you for one final thing? Tell us a favorite story about a presidential debate. Uh, Well, I, I, I... Give you You Richard, you can always count on him. Mother Jones's favorite person. Uh, Anyway, uh, my my favorite story is I was uh, one of the commentators. They had a Democrat and a Republican in 1988. after uh, the debates, and I was on CBS, and I watched Dan Quayle with, uh, with Benson. Uh, Lloyd Benson, and the answer is, oh, I was so glad to be a Democrat and watch the Republicans squirm, and that was a moment that you just couldn't believe. That was, mm-hmm. you know, it crystallized everything, and it proved something else. Whoever your vice president is, unless they are unbelievably uh, awful, uh, has no effect on the campaign. And uh, Sarah Palin probably hurt a little bit, and the answer is we had Spiro Agnew and Dan Quayle, so it always comes back to the presidential candidates. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.